A quick note, this is a 10-part chronological docuseries. We recommend starting at Chapter 1. And for the best immersive listening experience, headphones are suggested. Commander, do you remember being warned that if you were to fly one of these missions over North Vietnam, you would have a high likelihood of being shot down, and if you were to survive that, you would almost definitely be captured and held as a prisoner of war? No, because we had no experience in North Vietnam. I was the first guy. That's 85-year-old Everett Alvarez Jr., a retired, highly decorated naval commander. In the summer of 1964, he was a 26-year-old, hotshot, lieutenant junior grade naval aviator. He had just flown his first successful mission over North Vietnam. That mission would later become known as the Gulf of Tonkin Incident, and it signified the very beginning of the Vietnam War. Everett safely landed back on his aircraft carrier that night and reveled in the congratulations from his fellow men. Less than 48 hours later, Everett would be assigned to his next mission. But this time, he wouldn't land. That is where our story begins. It didn't really hit me what we were doing until after we were airborne and we were heading north to, to our target. I mean, we were, we were at altitude, we're not evading, we're just going straight in. As I was, uh, we were flying in uh, at altitude, I was flying wing on the lead, and I, it, it just started to hit me, hey, we're going into war. And, you know, this is, this is war. And my, my knees started to shake. I couldn't stop them, you know. You know, we didn't really know much about the target except that we had a high-altitude uh, photograph of the, of, the, of the harbor area. You know, the briefing that we had was, there, you know, there may be AAA around the, around the port, anti-aircraft. Well, there, was a, there were a lot of anti-aircraft guns around that port. And as we got real close, as we came down, because we were going fast, there they were, and, uh, you know, I fired. My lead did not fire, and so we broke off, and uh, the world opened up on me. I looked up and just nothing but the sky was black. At that time, I had been, you know, been drilled so much like, you know, remember Top Gun, you know, you stick with your leader, you stick with your leader. So I stuck with my leader. I'd already fired my rockets, so I, I switched on my guns. He went in, I, I went in. And when we were exiting the area, that's when I got hit. When I was hit, I mean, there was just no way I was gonna make it. I was trying to get out of there, but everything filled up with smoke. Every emergency came on, and I could tell my wings started to come off because I couldn't control it. So I knew I had to get out. And I figured if I waited any longer, I wasn't going to make it because I was really low. I had to get out now. So I pulled the ejection curtain and I, and I went out. I felt the chute extend, the parachute extended, popped open, and within two, two three seconds, I was in the water. That's how close I came. 
that was the start of my saga of, as a POW. On that day, August 5th, 1964, Everett Alvarez would become the first Navy airman to be shot down and captured in the very early days of the Vietnam conflict. He would spend more than eight years in captivity, alongside hundreds of other Americans known to be held captive as POWs between 1964 and 1973. Today, many, like Everett, are still with us and willing to tell their stories of overcoming unthinkable odds to endure, survive, and return home to their families. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the U.S. saving those men from captivity. This docu-series will tell the story of the Vietnam POW crisis like never before, with new original narrative from Commander Everett Alvarez and Captain Red McDaniel, in addition to interviews with their children, POW wives, historians, and authors, and accompanied by newly resurfaced recordings from the Lyndon B. Johnson and Richard Nixon presidencies. Lieutenant Everett Alvarez will have been a prisoner six years next Wednesday. The problem of those who are held prisoner in North Vietnam is one of enormous concern to us. We certainly are going to keep this very much high on the agenda and work toward a solution of it at any peace settlement if we can get one. This is the premier podcast from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in partnership with Foundwave Productions and created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. Additional support comes from In-N-Out Burger, proud to support veterans and their families. This is Captured, shot down in Vietnam. I'm Everett Alvarez. I was born in Salinas, California, December 23rd, 1937. So I just turned 85. I grew up in Salinas. We were in the outskirts. We were not in town. Large area out there, made up primarily of folks that had migrated to California during the Depression days, you know, the Grapes of Wrath type. That If you read Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, you know, they, they picked up everything on their trucks and came in and came out to work in the vegetables and lettuce sheds and what have you. They set up temporary buildings that turned out to be permanent. And so I grew up in a neighborhood that was just with the kids that were of the migrants, the Okies and Arkies that we called ourselves, that did house migrant workers from Mexico primarily, you know, a mixture of race and ethnicity. And that's what it was like. According to the Library of Congress, of the 2.7 million men and women that served during the Vietnam War, only 80,000 of them were of Hispanic origin. An even smaller minority would apply to the Navy, and tinier yet for the elite class of naval aviators, of which Everett was one. In 1960, the word Latino, as far as I was concerned, did not exist, and, and I grew up that way. We were mixed, intermarried, and friends, and what have you, in that area. We didn't have many Hispanic or, or Mexican kids in college. And so when I came in the Navy, I didn't give it a thought. 
And one day I'm looking around and there weren't any Spanish surnames. There weren't any blacks, really. Just a few I'd run into, but primarily they weren't part of the community. I have never uncovered a story as inspiring, as difficult, and as lesson-laden as the American POW story. That's Alvin Townley, a historian and senior fellow at the U.S. Naval Academy. He's the author of five books on the American military and one of the foremost authorities on the prisoner of war crisis. He sees the plight of the Vietnam POWs as one of the greatest examples of human endurance in American history. I've had the great privilege of coming to know a lot of America's Vietnam POWs and their family members over the past 10 years and have really come to appreciate what they did and how they did it and what their lessons hold for those of us learning their story today. No one wants to be a POW. No one wants to go to war. But those situations create a really extraordinary crucible for observing and studying leadership and human nature and resilience. The historical events leading up to the conflict in Vietnam were complex, involving several countries and strained alliances. But for most Americans, including Everett, it was very simple. Growing up in the Cold War, communism was our adversary. Communism was the enemy. It was a philosophical difference. It's hard for us to remember today how intense the rivalry was between the Soviet Union and the United States. I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to halt and eliminate this clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace, to abandon this course of world domination, and to join in an historic effort to end the perilous arms race and to transform the history of man. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. That was a, a terrifying thing that communism was spreading. And so it really motivated America to go in there and stop the spread of communism, really disregarding a lot of other things. There's a political theory that was prevalent back then called the domino theory. The theory went that if one country fell to communism, the neighboring countries would then fall to communism, just like dominoes. South Vietnam was seen as the next domino to fall. Communist China had taken control of the Communist Party. So here we were with the bamboo curtain, as was known at the time. So we basically trained to contain the spread of communism. That was the Cold War. Vietnam was another proxy battle in the Cold War between North Vietnam and South Vietnam on the surface. But really, it was the Soviet Union backing North Vietnam and the United States backing South Vietnam. Activities were picking up in South Vietnam. And, you know, the news started to get filled with events were happening, what have you. This is a CBS News special report. There are many terms which might be used to characterize the conflict now occurring in Vietnam. Strange lands, odd customs, and unfamiliar civilization have become a common sight to personnel of the United States Army. The communists take over in Vietnam. Sent to Vietnam. Mm. Vietnam. It's about as far from home as an American can be while still on Earth. A hilltop collection of guns and bunkers looking north across the DMZ. The U.S. effort to our Vietnamese allies to defend themselves from the communists. Diversified military force. Political, economic, psychological, and military measures. Step by step with Washington. Joined together in a common effort against communist subversion. The United States has come to help and are helping. 7 o'clock in the morning here in Saigon. 7 o'clock the previous night in New York City. The generals are talking openly about an invasion of the North. We really didn't know in depth the history and, and a lot of things that came about with Vietnam. North Vietnam was communist and South Vietnam was not. 
And in that sense, I think America's had a, a very simple understanding of a complex situation. Basically, you know, what we knew about it was you know, what we were told. Under President Kennedy, we sent more and more military advisors. President Kennedy was assassinated before the conflict really took a even, I guess, more grave turn. It just worries the hell out of me. I don't see what we can ever hope to get out of there with. President Johnson inherited the situation. We got a treaty, but hell, uh, everybody else got a treaty out there, and they're not doing anything about it. At some point, there's a, a recording of him. I'll tell you, the more I just stayed awake last night thinking about this thing, the more I think of it, I don't know what in the hell. Uh, Basically saying there's you know, no way to increase our involvement safely. I don't think it's worth fighting for. There's no way to get out. I don't out. think we can get out. And it's, it's just a mess. It's just the biggest damn mess. It I is. Saw. It's an awful mess. That's, that's the dilemma. That's exactly the dilemma. I think President Johnson didn't know what to do. Uh, this is a terrible thing we're getting ready to do. Except continue to increase you know, our efforts to, to prop up the South Vietnamese regime and defeat communism there in that Southeast Asian battlefield. Mr. President, I just think that we either reach up and get it or we let it go by. And I'm not telling you today what I'd do in your position. I just think the most we have to do is to pray with it for another while. And so he escalated the war significantly. He did not run for re-election in large part because of the Vietnam War. And then President Nixon tried to achieve what he called peace with honor. To end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. Whenever it joined the Navy in 1960, Nixon had finished his second term as vice president under Eisenhower and was about to lose his first bid for president in the coming election. Neither Nixon Everett, nor any of the men or women joining the military during this American peacetime, could have predicted what was in store for them less than five years later. I always had an interest in going into flight training. I was fascinated by the jets that would fly into Moffett Field, which was nearby. I was an electrical engineer in college at Santa Clara University. When I would look at the recruiting posters, you know, it was join the Navy, see the world, be a naval aviator. You know, that always caught my attention. Qualify as a naval aviation cadet. And so I uh, naturally gravitated towards that. I graduated June of 1960, but I had taken the exams for Navy flight training that winter before that. Interesting that that was peacetime, so... The bar was set higher than when they needed a lot of pilots. I remember I took the exam with um, about 55 college seniors in the Bay Area. Of all those college seniors, that particular session, I was the only one. Portrait of a happy undergraduate. He has just been accepted as a Naval Aviation Cadet. Then I had a decision to make that I really want to go in. Portrait of a confused undergraduate. He has his life before him and doesn't know what he's going to do with it. I had job offers. In 1960, the country was looking for engineers. Maybe he'll be an engineer. I counseled with my father. and I said, look, I could always come back and be an engineer, but this is something I'd really like to try. He knows where he's going. Sailing everywhere, for cloud or storm, we airmen out to sea are proud to shield our land of liberty, for we're the skyline of defense. 
The Navy's flying right, the first in every fight. A wings of steel will never yield the blue. No sky echoes away, sky high. Crazy looking back, how many different turning points there were that wouldn't have led you to be a POW, like graduating at top of your class, deciding to go, making the left turn down to the South Sea instead of up to Japan. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's like every little thing. It was, it was fate. If I hadn't gone in, it's probably something I would have regretted the rest of my life. Naval aviators are their own breed, and they are the United States Navy's flyers. People that go into military aviation are confident. His mind will be alert. They're in control. His body active and healthy. And they're great at their job, and they think they're great at their job. Everybody who goes into naval aviation starts in Pensacola, Florida. He's on his way to Pensacola, the Navy's Annapolis of the air. That's where you start your ground school, your training to go through the flight. Flight training. The training program. The best training for aviators in the world. When you got to advance, you either stayed in the area or you went to advanced bases. I went to advanced bases in Texas for jet training. And then when you finally finish the training, be a good 18, 18 months, months to finish the program. And back in those days, we get designated naval aviators. You get the wings pinned on. And when he receives those Navy wings of gold, he'll fly with the fleet in the most modern planes that America can produce. You can, too, if you qualify as a naval aviation cadet. Make your own portrait that of a happy man. See your nearest recruiting station and investigate the Navy. These were no program. ordinary pilots. Everett and his compatriots weren't flying 21st century fighter jets. There weren't onboard computers or autopilot technology. They had to land on the tiny dot that was the 300 feet of an aircraft carrier, a mere fraction of a regular airport's runway. And they had to do it all by hand, eye, and feel. Their unique characteristic is that most of them tend to fly off aircraft carriers and land on ships in all sorts of weather, day or night, rain or shine, it's really extraordinary to think they're putting down you know, jet, supersonic jet aircraft on a pitching, rolling flight deck that looks like a postage stamp when they start approaching. But they have a, a real gift for aviation. These men were U.S. naval aviators with flying skills among the best in the world, a truly elite and exclusive division. In the war, 401 naval aviators were killed, 64 went missing, and 179 of them, like Everett, would be captured as prisoners of war of the North Vietnamese. They were competitive, and quite frankly, they weren't going to let the North Vietnamese win. And many times they lost the battle, but they never gave up on winning the war. Let's now go back to 1964. Four years into Everett's military career, there had not yet been any combat between U.S. military forces and the factions of North Vietnam, not knowing what lay ahead of him. He was about to ship out to the choppy waters of East Asia, some 7,000 miles away from sleepy Salinas, California. One thing I did is I got married. And we were basically together six months before we left on cruise. Just before we left, I went up to see my family, and there was a carrier, but it was called the USS Card a supply ship carrying planes. And it was blown up in Saigon Harbor. So my father said, well, 
maybe you'll be going down there. And I remember telling him, oh, well, no, that doesn't apply to me because our ship's going to go to Japan initially. Those plans changed while we were en route to Japan. We were directed to turn and head for the South China Sea. Let's go back to where we left off. Last we heard, Everett's plane's wings were coming off. He had no choice but to eject, barely getting his parachute off in time, and landing with a huge splash in hostile, uncharted, northern Vietnamese waters. Now what? He didn't count on being shot down, and all of a sudden, he was in the, in the water. I was the first pilot tourist, you might say, in the, one of the ten natural wonders of the world, that little area there off the coast. He was very much unprepared for it because you know, no one had really been taken uh, as a POW there in North Vietnam. In those days, we didn't have radios because they had not issued those yet. So I'm in the water, and the first thing I, I remember, oh, crazy things going through my mind. I thought, oh, my God. Uh, and I surfaced, and I was okay. I just took off my helmet, and the oxygen mask was attached to it. And it floated away. I got myself out of that parachute, because that would have just dragged me down. Still had my, my seat pack, which has a little life preserver, my uh, Mae West inflatable little raft. I looked around. I was amongst these big outcroppings out of the water. It's Halong Bay, which is picturesque, one of the tourist attractions in the world. Off in the distance, there were these, like, fishing boats. And, and so I said, you know, I got to get myself to one of the outcroppings where I could probably hide in there. I tried swimming, but the current was taking me in the opposite direction. I thought, God, if they see me, they're going to kill me. I thought about, you know, defending myself, and I carried a 38, and I said, you know what, I'm really defenseless here. I slipped off the 38, let it sink. If you're ever captured and they know you're married, they'll use that against you. We were not supposed to fly with our wedding rings or any rings. But I did. I, I had my wedding ring on. I, did, I never took it off. For some reason, I just slipped it off, and I said, you know what, we'll get you another one, and I'll get another one when I get home, or see you, and I, I let the ring go. I was swimming, but against the tide, and so I decided to inflate my May West, and I figured, geez, if I just inflate one of the cords, I won't pop up as high as if I inflated it fully. Well, that's not true. I popped the cork, bobbed up, and that's when the next thing I know is I'm trying to deflate this thing because I was too exposed. That's when the bullets start flying. The boats got close to the little fishing boat. Well, they were all militia think that they were more afraid of me than I was of them. As they circled closer with their little boat, there were about four guys with rifles, a guy with a revolver, and a young kid with a hand grenade. His finger was in the pin ready to pull it. I said, don't pull, no, 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 don't pull the trigger. 
he was shaking so hard, and the leader had a 40, like a 45. He's the one that was giving directions to the others. They could have shot me, but they, they purposely did not shoot, hit me. So I figured they wanted to capture me, and they did. So they pulled me aboard and wrapped me up like a top with rope, took off my, my gear, shoes and everything. A torpedo PT boat pulls up a little later, and they transferred me onto the PT boat and took me back to the base that we had just bombed. Their uh, interrogators, English speaking, they said, why don't you, why don't you want to talk to us? Name, rank, service number, date of birth was all I was supposed to give them. Uh, and that's what I gave them. According to the Geneva Agreements, I thought, that's all I need to give you. And they said, look, there's no war. We never signed the Geneva Agreements. The United States has not declared war on us. So you're not a prisoner of war. And in fact, you're a criminal, and you will be tried by a tribunal. Well, what do I think now? <laughs> Captured, Shot Down in Vietnam is a docu-series from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Foundation. Produced by the team at Foundwave and respectfully created in honor of Ross Perot Sr. If you're interested in learning more about Vietnam POWs, you can visit the exhibition Captured at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda, California. Original music compositions, Foley effects, and mastering from Jonathan Rock. Produced and edited by Steph Weaver-Weinberg. Research, background, and history from Jason Schwartz. Executive production from Joe Lopez and the team at the Richard Nixon Foundation and Kaylee Mason from Perot Family Collections. Co-executive production, interviewing, and hosting from me, Tyler Russell McCusker. Find future episodes of this show and bonus content, including archival photos and audio, at CapturedPodcast.com. If you enjoyed our production, please consider leaving a review and clicking follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.